Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. Sometimes when we're going through the catechism, we really focus in on one passage that sets the teaching before us. That's not the case tonight. We will be going to various places in Scripture, but I wanted to read uh, this passage at the outset so that we can see uh, the way in which God puts His justice and His mercy, His justice and His compassion side by side as a way to keep in our minds that which he holds as God who never changes, as God who shows forth all of his attributes perfectly. So Exodus 34, and then we'll read the answers of uh, Lord's Day 4 together. That's on page 11 in the back of your blue hymnal. We'll read those in just a minute. Hear now God's holy word, Exodus 34, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write them, I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Lord's Day 4, questions 9 through 11. Let's read the answers together. I'll read the the questions as we look to the the teaching of our standards. Lord's Day 4. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however... Tempted by the devil, in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry about the sin we are born with, as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge... He punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, Cursed be every one who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But isn't God also merciful? 
God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. This is perhaps where the Catechism gives its bleakest outlook on the the reality of our sin, just before it turns to man's deliverance. This is the the end of this section on guilt, just before we move to grace. But important and biblical and indispensable doctrines that uh, we must remember and keep in mind and uh, remind ourselves of this evening. I read this past week that man loves sin, but he dreads hell. Man loves sin, but he dreads hell. Sin is enjoyable for a time, but the thought of paying for our sins, that is another matter that there will be a day when all is set right, when the accounts are balanced. Man dreads hell, and that's why the doctrine of hell is considered a dreadful doctrine. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the law of God is more than just a code. Uh, a code is the example we used is like a, a speed limit. If there were some way to perfectly enforce adherence to the speed limit, like if every uh, car was built with a a governor on it that was able to obey the speed limit in every zone, or if somehow they could configure it so that your engine would combust the minute you go one mile an hour over the speed limit, then you'd probably see uh, much different driving on the road, wouldn't you? Of course you would. But we know that in all likelihood, you crunch the numbers, you're not going to be caught. And so what do people do? They go three miles an hour over, or five over, or they go ten over and think nothing of it. But what if payment were a certainty? What if there were no way to escape the debt incurred by breaking the law? This would change things completely. And this, of course, is to be the perspective that we have as biblical Christians, that we live every day of our lives in light of the last day, that we do not pretend for one second that human beings will not stand before the judge, the judge of all, before a just God. But what happens is, as you you think about, especially in, in our culture where there's so many prevailing opinions about God and what are the ultimate things, origin, meaning, morality, destiny, is that uh, people begin to convince themselves of something else and convince themselves that God's word is unreasonable. Surely not all men will stand before God. Surely not all men will, will stand before God and answer for the things that they have done. It's, it's like in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent says, surely you will not die where he's calling Eve to to look upon the word of God as unreasonable, as absurd. And so the same thing happens today. Surely not all will stand before God. 
And so what happens, just as Eve did in the fall, she becomes a law unto herself. She sees that the tree is good for food and for making you wise, for making one wise, and she takes it and eats. Just like that, uh, what happens is people construct a God of their own liking, in their own image, an ironic reversal of what happens in Genesis. God creates us in his image. In our sin and rebellion, we create a false God in our own image. One theologian puts it this way, man invents his own God, an idol that is holy like unto himself. And what is that? Well, most people say, well, if I were king for a day, I would just let sin pass by. I would wink at it. I I wouldn't really punish people for sin. That's exactly what this theologian goes on to say. He invents an idol that is holy like unto himself. He deprives God of his sterner attributes of righteousness and justice and speaks of a God of mercy and love that will wink at sin and make the ungodly the object of his blessing. And thus he tries to quiet the voice of his own conscience and partly succeeds to create for himself a sense of safety in the way of sin until he meets the living God in the day of the revelation of his righteous judgment. Men think they can invent their own God when the unchanging and eternal God is ever reigning. God says that he will by no means clear the guilty. You couldn't say it any clearer than he does in Exodus 34. He will by no means clear the guilty. Why? Because he is just. Because he is a just God. See, even in the midst of the revelation of his mercy and grace, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and we'll get to that later on tonight, but even in the midst of that, he tells us about his justice. In other words, we cannot sacrifice one attribute of God on the altar of another. And if there is one thing that tends to happen in today's world, those who talk about God or construct him in their own image, what do they do? They sacrifice his justice on the altar of his mercy. You say, yes, but God is loving and he is merciful. So uh, he's, he's not going to ultimately see through the punishment of the sins of his creatures. But... Biblically speaking, we know that all of the attributes of God must operate in harmony with each other. And the only place that we can know a God and hold to a God who is just and merciful and yet live is Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can we hold to a God that is just and merciful and live. We'll get to that a little bit later. We'll kind of go through each question as it comes to us in the catechism tonight. And the first is, uh, we see the hopelessness of accusing God. This first question, question nine, is, has God done wrong with the way that things have gone in this world? Is God unjust? Is he wrong for doing this? Where does this thought come from? This thought comes from a desire to rid ourselves of the responsibility to serve our creator, right? If God is at fault for some reason, for the way things have gone in the world, the fact that we are prone by nature to break the law of God, the fact that we are guilty before God and we inherit that guilt, if God is on the hook for that, then we rid ourselves of the responsibility to serve him. It's the desire to create autonomy, It's the desire to define the realities of life, the good life, our purpose, our meaning, and ultimately whom we serve 
All of that can be left up to the individual. And so we say to ourselves, well, if I cannot fulfill this, I will refuse to shoulder the obligation. I will refuse to shoulder the culpability for it. That's where this thought comes from, wanting to rid ourselves of serving our Creator. But there's a hopelessness in escaping the reality of God's sovereignty and His rule. You cannot deny forever the fact that God reigns, that He rules, that He is judge. You can acknowledge that now, or you can acknowledge it when you meet Him on the last day. There's a hopelessness in escaping God. Can you quit being a creature of God like you quit a job? Can you walk away from his sovereign rule? Can you walk away from his life? No, of course not. Look at the sovereignty of God and the the rule and the reign of God in a place like Psalm 104. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountain. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them the birds of the heavens dwell, They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. See, Psalm 104 is furnishing us with this grand view of God. It's his world. And he's operating from heaven. He is, he knows exactly what happens. And he gives all from his good hand. The point is that your service to God is not a a mutually written contract. You don't get together and collectively bargain with God as to whether or not you're going to serve him as to whether or not you are going to be accountable to him. It's not a choice. Everything that you do is in God's world. Everything that you are enabled to do is from God's gifting. And everything that you carry out is with God's tools that he has given to man. There's a hopelessness of escaping God, though men try to do it. But there's also a hopelessness of fulfilling his commands, as we've seen. Hopelessness of carrying out God's good and righteous law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 1 John 1.8, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Romans 3.19, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Later on in the book of Romans, it says that God has shut the mouth of everyone under sin. He has consigned all to disobedience that he might show mercy. All disobey. We think about that, and I was actually having a conversation about that this past week with a non-believer friend of mine. And you think about the example that I used uh, a couple weeks ago in our sermon. New York firefighters running into uh, the Twin Towers on 9-11 to save uh, people who were trapped in there. Soldiers at Normandy 
uh, storming the beaches because they believe in, in the, the goodness of the American project and the freedom that we were standing for on, on the worldwide stage. A, a good thing, noble thing, honorable things. Not everyone who is in the fire department of New York, not everyone who's in the United States Army is regenerated and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. But we see those as good and honorable and noble things. So on the one hand, we're saying there's a hopelessness of being obedient and serving God and having righteousness. On the other hand, we look at things that human beings do and and even something as simple as having a good and decent neighbor who does not know the Lord. And we say, wow, they're such nice people. What do we do with that? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says something that I think is quite helpful on the idea of good works. It says this, Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, so they're obeying a command of God, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner, that is, according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. Human beings might do something, but if it's not from a heart that is purified by faith, if it's not towards the glory of God, it is in itself sinful even though from a human perspective we may look at it and see it as a good thing. All of that to say there's a hopelessness in serving uh, God in righteousness in and of ourselves. Hopelessness of escaping him. There's a hopelessness of creating another standard. You cannot create another standard that would pass a value judgment on God. That's what question nine shows to us. Can we rise to the level of where we would call God unjust? No, of course not. God must be the criterion and the standard of all good. If something else could be the criterion of good, that would make that thing or that standard or that being God. One theologian says this, There is no law above God. There is no criterion whereby he can be judged. There is no tribunal to which one can appeal from his verdict. We live in a world of appeals, don't we? Reverdict, you just appeal. If you don't get what you want, automatically appeal it to the next level. Hopefully they take the case. If you live in America, you're always hoping that it gets to the Supreme Court. You can have an ultimate answer. There's no one above God. There's no court of appeals. Romans 9 uh, furnishes us with this proper view that we are to have with God. Which Romans 9 says, a human being cannot look at God and say, Why have you made me like this? Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You cannot look at God and say, you were wrong for doing this. Augustine, uh, in his dispute with Pelagius drove his interlocutor crazy when he said in a prayer, God, grant what thou commandest and command what thou will. 
In other words, God, whatever you will to command of me, you can command it of me even if I cannot do it. Because I know that by your grace, you will give me the power to carry out that command. It's a, it's a view of God that's saying through and through, he is sovereign, he is powerful, he is Lord, he is judge, he has an authority above me that I cannot answer to. I know that I have no appeal above him. It's centered around him, around God alone. There's a hopelessness of searching for a judge other than God, a hopelessness of escaping him, a hopelessness of fulfilling his commands, a hopelessness of finding another judge. And so it brings us then to question 10, the justice of God's wrath, that the wrath of God against sin is just. We read in the Catechism that God is terribly displeased with sin, something that we fail to to adequately and, and properly recognize. Psalm 7, verses 11 and 12 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, fierce against unrighteousness. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 1 Peter 3, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's wrath is is against sin. The evidence, there's evidence that we can see in our world and evidence that we take as fact in God's word. Part of the evidence is that death reigns. Death reigns in our world. Physical death, uh, the corruption of the body, and all of the sufferings that go with it. Psalm 90. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end, like a sigh. We look at this world and we know and we understand that God did not create us in a state of the reigning of death. And we feel within ourselves when we grieve the death of loved ones or we think about death in general, we feel within ourselves and we believe that it's not the way that it ought to be. It's not the way that it always will be. We think about the corruption, the deterioration of our bodies and we think the same. We think of the suffering that we're often subjected to through sickness and we feel the same. Not only does death reign, but Misery reigns. Death and suffering reign, and then misery reigns. You think about the the terrible 20th century, a century that opened up with this grand vision that humanity is going to figure it all out. We're going to be able to solve all of the problems. We're going to, to, to find cures for every disease, and we're going to find world peace in every situation. And then the 20th century, of course, saw... The most deaths of all previous centuries combined in recorded history. Misery reigns. Uh, Some 
suggested that, uh, that freedom and, and, and liberty in these projects of, of more democratic governments, that was going to solve all of our problems. And what do we have now? We live in a, in a free society where government is perpetually looking at everything we do and monitoring everything we do. The amount of information that uh, the authorities have over us would make medieval tyrants blush. I love the Blaise Pascal as he's thinking about uh, the ways in which uh, man finding, trying to find his own salvation is such a dead-end project. He says this, It is in vain, O men, that you seek within yourselves the cure for all your misery. All your insight has led you to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves that you discover the true and the good. The philosophers promised them to you, but they were not able to keep that promise. They do not know what your true good is or what your nature is. How should they have provided you with a cure for ills which they have not even understood? Your principal maladies are pride, which cuts you off from God, and sensuality, which binds you to the earth. And they have done nothing but foster at least one of these maladies. If they have given you God for your object, it has been to pander to your pride. They have made you think you are like him and resemble him by your nature. And those who have grasped the vanity of such a pretension have cast you down in the other abyss by making you believe that your nature is like that of a beast of the field and have led you to seek your good in lust, which is the lot of animals. Misery reigns in this world and death reigns. We read in our catechism that God's wrath is against sin both in time, so now, and in eternity. Most of the time, we, we, we think about it mostly in terms of the future. So how is God's wrath against sin active now in time? Because oftentimes, we say, well, sinners are enjoying prosperity. It's the, the worldview of Psalm 73. The, the wicked are prospering. If I look around, what are they doing? They're getting rich by all of their cheating. They're doing whatever they want, and it seems like nothing is ever coming against them. Well, there are a couple of ways in which the wrath of God is active and against them even now, as God's word says so in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Peter 3. So just a couple of things to think about. The first is this. The conscience of unjustified sinners, of unsaved people, is always operating against them and accusing them. Even if that conscience is seared and hardened to a large degree, it's not going to go away completely and the conscience stands against an unjustified sinner and they always have to live with that conscience. Are they good at living with that conscience? Perhaps. But live with it, they must. It's a part of God's wrath. Secondly, this. As unjustified sinners often enjoy prosperity in this life, their enjoyment of earthly things makes them less conscious of God's wrath that is against them. And so it operates in a reverse way. Yes, they may be enjoying the things of this world, but because of that, they are less aware that God's wrath stands against them. And then, of course, they await God's judgment on the last day. But, of course, ultimately... And where scripture points us to is that which happens in eternity. And what is the message of scripture? The message of scripture is that after death, the righteous are blessed and the wicked are tormented. That's the way that hell and heaven and eternity are given to us. The righteous will be blessed. The wicked will be tormented. Isaiah 66 
Isaiah gives this uh, grand view of the new heavens and the new earth and all things will be made right, all things will be made new, but then he ends the last words of Isaiah the prophet, verse 24, or 23 and 24 says, those who live in the new heavens and new earth, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In Mark chapter 9, actually see that same teaching from Isaiah 66. Jesus says, and this really impresses upon us the importance of eternity and thinking in light of eternity. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. It goes on and on. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable. And some people say, well, this is just a parable. It doesn't speak of reality. But the entire point of the parable is that the righteous are blessed in eternity and the unrighteous or tormented. Luke 16, the poor man and Lazarus, or uh, Lazarus and the rich man, sorry. The poor man died and was uh, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Revelation chapter 14. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and in Revelation there, we're giving an, a, given an apocalyptic prophecy of those who rebel against the true God, right? So uh, don't necessarily think that Revelation is talking about uh, some kind of actual mark on the forehead. It's an apocalyptic prophecy, those who do not serve the living God. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. Revelation chapter 20. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That very same fire and sulfur that the devil and his angels are thrown into. So if the righteous are blessed... And the wicked are judged, who is righteous? Who is righteous? The catechism's already told us, no one's righteous. No one. We're prone by nature to hate God, 
to hate our neighbor. No one is righteous, but that makes way for what? For God's mercy. But what we need to know and understand, and the reason the Catechism brings us through this, and the reason why it's important to understand these doctrines, is to know that God's mercy is just. Because his mercy is in Christ, and it's in Christ alone. And so the Catechism says, is then God not also merciful? It's almost like it's crying out, or Sinus and and those who uh, wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, crying out, is wrath all that God is? Is this the only thing that God is? Is he some kind of tyrant that does nothing but punish people? Can we divorce justice from mercy? Can we think about just mercy? It says God is merciful, but he is just. You see, God is merciful, but it's in accordance with his justice. In fact, God's word tells us the way that it shows God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness is that this is what he delights to do. There's something that he loves, and what he loves to do is forgive sin. He loves to show compassion. Just as Exodus 34 says, I am a God who is slow to anger, who loves to forgive sin, who abounds in loving kindness. As Ezekiel 33 says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O Israel? 2 Samuel 14, We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain. An outcast. Lamentations 3. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. First Peter says, of course, that God allows time to move on so that he might bring children into his presence of forgiveness and shower them with the blessing of the gospel. And so as we end tonight, the the, the point is that God's mercy is only in Christ. Nowhere else, nowhere else will we find God's mercy. It's in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. This is why the Catechism has gone through this road, particularly here in Lord's Day 4, so that it can show to us what? Full satisfaction for sin. It brings that word satisfaction into whole new light. That he satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf, that he pays for sin. It makes that phrase that we say in the Apostles' Creed mean so much more. He descended into hell. When the church was reformed, and those like Calvin and those who came after him, we we knew that we weren't confessing that Jesus descended down to the physical location of hell. But they were so unwilling to do away with that phrase because they wanted for us to know and to hold in our minds that in the punishment he undergoes, he goes to hell for us because he pays the exact price that would have sent us there. Full satisfaction for sin. See, it's at the cross of Christ where you see all these things come together. The only place that you see evil, love, justice, and forgiveness all converge. You see the evil in the heart of man. 
to crucify the Son of God and the evil in the heart of man that made it such that Jesus had to go to the cross. You see, the love of God in sending the Son, the love of Christ to stay and to obey to the end. You see, the justice of God poured out on the Son. And you see forgiveness offered to the world. There's a song, one of a modern hymn that says, Once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice shall agree. Love and justice shall agree. You see, God's mercy is just because of Christ. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you embrace the message of the gospel, as we read in John chapter 6, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. You believe, you have faith in Jesus. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you you are proclaiming simultaneously that God is just and merciful. God does not send Christ to the cross unless he is just. God does not forgive in Christ unless he is merciful. It is only in Christ. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Full satisfaction sin. All kinds of teachings out there today that try to do away with the fact that Jesus is bearing the wrath of God on the cross. And if you lose that, you lose the very gospel. You lose the heart of the gospel. Hebrews 9, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. securing an eternal redemption. He himself, 1 Peter 2, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. God is just, displeased with our sin, yet God is merciful, and his mercy is just in Christ. In Christ, that's where we find the answer uh, that we need, the price that was paid for us in the gospel of grace. We cling to that. We cling to that because we know that we will receive comfort nowhere else. So believe in Jesus and trust in him and his work to cover all your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for this message of, of hope and grace and comfort even as we think about weighty things. We don't enjoy thinking of what awaits those in eternity who reject you and your gospel and your word, who rebel against you. And so, Father, we ask that you would empower us to boldly stand for the truth and to love the gospel and to support the work of the gospel throughout the world. We pray that you will raise up ministers of the gospel and that churches will be planted and established churches which proclaim the truth of your word and even churches founded upon our very reformed confessions and father we pray that you would gather people to yourself strengthen us nourish us in the truth of this good word tonight we thank you for your word we entrust it to you that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you will bring these things to our mind in the coming days as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.